0: So I'm writing a novel, is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also answer listener questions and, sometimes, interview people who write fiction. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. As part of my research in trying to become more familiar with the sword and sorcery genre, I discovered what is referred to as sword and soul. Sword and soul means sword and sorcery stories focusing on tales of people of color with semi-historical or full-on fictional settings rooted in African history, cultures, and myths. I think it's fair to say it was born out of the work Imaro by Charles Saunders. And in studying Saunders and learning more about him, my attention was drawn to a contemporary writer named Milton J. Davis, with whom I'll be speaking today. Milton is a speculative fiction writer, but also a publisher, as owner of MV Media, a small publishing company specializing in science fiction, fantasy, and sword and soul. Their mission is to provide speculative fiction books that represent people of color in a positive manner. As an author, he has written 21 novels and short story collections, his most recent being a Sword and Soul adventure called Ida Blessed 2. He's also a contributing author to Black Panther, Tales of Wakanda, published by Marvel and Titan Books, and co-author of Hadithi and the State of Black Speculative Fiction with Eugene Bacon. There is... A great deal more he's done as editor as well, but I think the best thing to do is just get into it and let Milton tell you about himself. Oh, and heads up, there was a weird humming noise at two close together points that I don't know where it came from and didn't know how to remove. But you know what? Still have a really fun interview. So yeah, heads up and enjoy. And here we are with Milton Davis. Hi, Milton.
1: Hey, how you doing, man?
0: Pretty good. All right. Especially now I got rid of the cat that just made that noise. So anyway, <laughs> it's very professional over here. Let's get into it. OK, so... Going as far back as you can remember, what is your you know sort of the earliest reading experience you had that led to your lifetime love of fantasy fiction?
1: Well, it's, it's interesting because um, initially I did not read a lot of fantasy and fiction. I used to be a big history reader. Um, uh, And any experience I had with fantasy came through uh, with my cousin. My cousin was a big comic book reader. And I guess my first introduction to fantasy was the Conan series that Marvel did. Mm -hmm. And that was my really my first time seeing, you know, getting into fantasy and the whole Conan thing. I really loved the way they did it. And that kind of got my interest in it. But it wasn't until um, I was in college that I actually started reading science fiction and fantasy. And that was because I had a College instructor, I was a chemistry major, and I had an English class, and I did my first essay, and my instructor, Anna Holloway, who's a friend of mine now, called me to her office and said, well, why are you majoring in chemistry? You're a good writer. And I said, well, writers don't make any money. And... and I've proven that over the years. But, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, um, she was the person who actually introduced me to science fiction and fantasy. I think it was since I was a science major, I think that was her way to get me um, interested in writing by introduce, introduce me, introducing me to something that she felt like was connected to what I was majoring in. And so it was initially people like a- a- Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke and Heinlein and um, Samuel Delaney, but eventually it started going into, you know, some of the fantasy um, authors like, you know, like Robert E. Howard, uh, Michael Moorcock, you know, um, different things like that. So that's what really kind of got me into
0: it. Cool. I'm not gonna be that guy. I'm curious. Do you remember with the Marvel Conans? Was that the uh, sort of mainstream Marvel line, or was it those savage sort of Conan magazine-sized guys that were always in black and white?
1: It was those the savage Sword of Conan. It was Those and the and the uh, comic book as well. I read both of them.
0: Oh, okay, yeah.
1: Yeah, they, they both. And you know, of course, it was movies. You know, I grew up in the '60s, so I'm I'm watching. You know, everything like that to me was mainly visual. So i you know, I was really into like Jason and the Argonauts and and stuff like that. So my so my I guess I would consider that too, kind of my, like interest interest to fantasy as well because but it was mostly visual it was it wasn't written really the written word
0: okay so um I kind of gave my own take on it before we got into the interview portion here but I would love to hear your definition for the listeners of sword and soul. How would you define that?
1: Well, to me, sword and soul is basically a fantasy, um, epic fantasy, sword and sorcery that's based on pre-colonial African culture and tradition and history. That's that's basically what it is in a nutshell. Well,
0: cool. and now you you, know, you you publish other things, but I feel like that's sort of your flagship genre uh, within V Media. Mm-hmm. What's it like being both a writer and a publisher? Like when you submit your stories to people, does your publishing side make you kind of want to dispute any rejections you get a little more? Or, you know, kind of like being both the referee and the player or uh, (laughs) how's
1: that that go? I think it makes me more sympathetic to people who submit stuff to me because as a writer as well, I always understand what they're going through. And I think it makes me kind of a softy because because I've been on the other end of it. But once I started self-publishing, once I started indie publishing, I, I really don't submit. I very rarely do I submit something to magazines or other publications. It's usually by request. Somebody will get in contact with me and say, hey, Milton, I got this anthology coming up. And I wanted to know that it'll be either... Can you write a story for it, or I read this story that you wrote, and I want to, and I want to know if I can use this in our anthology. And I guess for me, the pressure is not there as far as submitting because I am an indie publisher. I know my stuff is going to get published one way or another.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> so. True, true, and, I, and my apologies. I forgot. Of course, there are people approaching you. You know, you don't have to audition anymore. <laughs> 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 we that level of the career. My apologies. Um, <laughs> no, no well, problem. speaking of publishing, <laughs> speaking of publishing, I mean, you've been doing it for a while, right? Like sixteen years, if I'm well, correct. Well,
1: actually, thirteen years. I started writing in 2005.
0: Oh, pardon me. Sorry, um, I got that's, mixed. That's up. when yeah. I
1: decided that I was going to do this thing, and I was going to do it an indie. And it took me about three years to write enough to have enough uh, content to where I started publishing. Because I wanted to make okay. sure that every t- that I wanted to let out at least one book every year. So I wanted to build enough backlog to where I wouldn't be writing on the next book for that next year. I'd always have to be two or three books ahead. So when that year came around, I can just say, okay, we'll roll this book out. I'm working on book four while book one is being released, that kind of thing. So. That was my plan going
0: into. It. All right, well, that's work ethic, man. I'd love to get a one book a year. Jeez. Uh, and I'm wondering, you know, what you know, if you could travel back in time and talk to your 2008 self, I suppose. Pardon me. What would you tell them that you've learned in publishing, you know, to save them some grief? What would, you know, what lessons did you pass back to yourself?
1: I would tell them that your business projections are wrong. <laughs> that's not what I would tell them. Um, but you know, there's really not um, there's really not much I would change. I, w- I was very fortunate that when I got into, uh, you know, I I decided to do indie publishing after studying the market, and I really had a feeling that what I was trying to write was not going to be very acceptable to publishing at the w- the way it was at the time, and that's one of the reasons I decided to go independent. I also wanted to get, I had my own business back in the day. I wanted to do that. I just wanted to have the freedom to write stories the way that I wanted to write them without any kind of input and. All of that just came down to being an indie publisher. Um, I was fortunate that when I decided to do it that I ran into people who were experienced at doing that and they gave me very good advice on how to get started. And so it, it helped me avoid some of the pitfalls that people run into when they're doing indie publishing, like bad editors and, you know, people that, you know, tell you they're going to do this and never do it, that kind of thing. They gave me, they gave me contacts that helped me get into the um, whole process very easily. So I really don't have any, um, don't have too many regrets about it. I think um, based on what I was available to do at the time. And I just started where I could and just worked my way to this point.
0: Okay. Is there any like one piece of advice or lesson you'd want to pay forward to anybody looking to start their own company now?
1: I would just say do the research um, and understand that when you become a self-publisher, indie publisher, you are basically going into business because you have to do everything yourself and you're responsible for everything. And uh, and you have to go at it with that kind of a work ethic It's you know, nobody's really going to do anything for you. You have to be able to your marketing, your cover design, everything you got, to, your, ed, your editing, you know, you have to pay editors, all that stuff you have to do yourself. And uh, I, I do a class um, once a year Well, I was doing it once a year or two recently where I would talk to people about self-publishing. And the first question I would ask them was, what do you want to get out of writing? And that will determine whether or not self-publishing is for you or if you should take another path. Because some people just don't, they want to write, they don't want to be bothered with all the other stuff. And if that's what you want to do, then I would tell them, you need to really reconsider becoming an indie publisher. Mm -hmm. Because you have to set aside time to do all that other stuff.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I was just saying in my last interview uh, to uh, author Jess Frey there, we were talking about self-publishing and how you need to be prepared in the sense that like, you can do everything, you've got total creative control, but you just want to change that tone of voice slightly and be like, you can do everything, you do everything.
1: <laughs> exactly, <laughs> you know? exactly. Yeah,
0: it's a good thing to keep in mind.
1: Yeah, it is.
0: Okay, so if I understand correctly, part of your kind of literary uh, origin story was meeting and then going on to have had a working relationship with the father of sword and soul, Charles Saunders, yeah, uh, author of the Magnificent Tomorrow series and more. And I imagine, but correct me if I'm wrong, but I think so., uh, you would agree with me that Saunders isn't just noteworthy. He is noteworthy, but he's not just noteworthy for being a black sword and sorcery author, writing stories grounded in African culture. He's noteworthy because he was a good writer that brought new depth to his you know, to his beloved genre. So, uh, what is something you admire about his writing, about his craft?
1: Well, well that's you, you said it exactly. The, the thing about it, I, I never read Charles until right before I was about to release. Well, I, I actually did. I first I read the first story by him was called the first story I read by him was a story called Gimli's Song, which is in the um, Dark Matter anthology, which was the first anthology that was created with focusing on black speculative fiction and. Um, it was a story about one of his other characters that people don't really know a lot about is, um, her name is Desoye. And I read the story and I was like, man, this is a good story. This guy Charles is pretty good. But I wasn't really into fantasy and science fiction at the time when I read it. But then as I was working on my own projects, I was like, you know, somebody has had, has had to do this before because it's just too much stuff out there. And right before I was released, I was working on Meji I can't remember the name of the publisher now. Um, Nightshade, they had, they had re-released their Morrow series and I was like, okay, I knew there was somebody else out there. And that's when I started reading this stuff. And when I started reading this book, it's just his storytelling ability. And for me, particularly as a writer, his his vocabulary was just blowing me away. And I'm like, this guy must have his own little thesaurus somewhere <laughs> 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 that is just for him. And he has all these words and I was just reading this stuff and it's just the depth of the story was a lot different than what I was used to when I read your know, typical sword and sorcery type books. And as the as I read further on, as, you know, after we met, and I started reading more of his his, uh, his series, started to go into the other books. You could see, even from the point that I ran it earlier, you could see his craft even getting better and growing. To the point, by the time you get to Immoral Four, I, after I read Immoral Four, I told people I said, "Look, um, you need to stop comparing Charles Saunders to Robert E. Howard mm. because, at my in my opinion, he's way beyond that." And he's at this point, he's at this style where he's basically kind of uh, gotten away from reflecting that traditional sword and sorcery where he's really into his own. He's really into his own at this point. And most people that I've met in sword and sorcery, they have a lot of respect for Charles. One of the reasons that I was able to, that I had an easier intro into the genre was because of people who were aware of him and what he had done. And the fact that he was saying, hey, check this young brother out it was like, um, you know, kind of giving me some leeway as I got into the genre with my with my stories.
0: Yeah. And like, I, I wish he had had even more recognition, you know, and then it does seem to be happening that with the kind of sword and sorcery, dare I attempt fate and say renaissance we're sort of having or at least re- there seems to be more air going back in the balloon, you know, like, since the eighties, <laughs> yeah, yeah. uh, you know, bad, schlocky movies kind of let it out that uh, he's getting more attention as people are, you know, working their way back through the stuff and then finding out like I've, I have I've just started uh, MRO too. And, yeah, I can already tell, like, even even by the end, of, near the end of tomorrow, you know, for the first one, like, you can see, yeah, as you say, like him evolving to more his own thing, you know? Obviously, he's, he's influenced by Howard. That's where he started. But, boy, does he just take it beyond. And, and even in the first book, like, I love how... He gives uh, the character Amaro like just a lot more depth, you know. Amaro's sort of constant search for uh, trying to find a home and acceptance, yeah, you know, and how it, yeah. and at least as far as I've read, it never seems to work out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Uh, I mean, and I think that was that's the the thing about Amaro that captures you because you know I've read all the Conan stories, and you know Conan's more this barbarian that's kind of just going from adventure to adventure. Basically, I mean, the running theme throughout the most of the Conan stories is um, Robert E. Howard showing that sometimes the people that you can Considered uncivilized or more civilized than the people that, you know, that are looking down upon them, I and that kind of thing, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but with Amaro, it's a more of a personal story, and and I think that's what makes it. That's what gives it depth and gives it, um, and it resonates so much with other peoples because you're actually into, you know, with Conan, I was more looking at, okay, what's this next adventure going to be? You know, who is it going to be fighting next? That kind of stuff. But with Amaro, I was really into. Him, not so much of the action, but how is this going to change his life? How is this going to get him closer to what he was searching and seeking and stuff, you know? And I think that's what gives it that. Um, that's what set, sets it apart from most of the um, sword and sorcery that you read.
0: Absolutely, and and I also admire how. Again, I'm afraid I've only just started book too, but in what I've read so far. It's like, you know, you have people like um, Fritz Leiber or Moorcock who would stitch together short stories they had written with no intent to create a saga uh, later in their careers mm-hmm. and the seams would kind of show, I mean, great writers, but still, uh, you know, or have people who picked up Howard's work, uh, you know, uh, Carter and DeCamp there in the 60s with their uh, controversial Lancers uh, collection of Conan where they <laughs> wrote their own stuff to film the gaps and so on and so forth, yeah, you know, yeah. um, but then you read Amaro and like, you know, he's starting out already with a vision in place, it feels. And I feel, you know, I think in the first book, at least, you could pick out many of the stories and enjoy them on their own, even though there is continuity, but they, of course, reward you reading them in order. And so it just shows this level of skill that, I don't know, you don't, you don't find it too often. <laughs> That's <no>? true. Right? <laughs> and you see
1: it too in um, the collection that, that uh, we have, uh, Bonnie Tales, which is a collection of his short stories that he wrote over the years and got published in different magazines. And none of those stories have Imaro as a main character, mm-hmm. but they talk about the world of Bonnie. But even the separate stories that he tells in those stories, you see, a, you actually see an underlying theme in all those stories as well. And as I read each story, I was like, okay, there's a there's a I guess a a theme that's that comes up in most of Charles's stories and once you read enough of his work you start to see it there and when you get to know him I mean fortunately I did get a chance to know him you kind of like like most writers you see where that theme came from a lot of times it's reflections of your own personal life that you do consciously or unconsciously (laughs) as you when you write your stories you know
0: So Charles' writing needs to be discussed more. I think we'll both agree on that. But you were lucky enough to be friends with the man. Uh, I'm curious, is there anything kind of fun you could tell us just about who he was as a a guy, you know, like any any stories to share?
1: Yeah, he was um, it was um, I think we hit it off. um, I met him through a friend of mine who had decided to publish Charles's books after Nightshade started to drop the series. And uh, actually, when I read the Nightshade's books, I was trying to get in contact with them. Me, with my naive self, thought I could just get in contact with a publisher and they would give me his information. (laughs) uh, (laughs) When my friend announced that he was gonna be picking up the book series, I said, hey man, is there some kind of way you can introduce me to Charles? I'd really like to meet him. And he did, we we met through email. Uh, Unfortunately, I never got a chance to meet with him face to face. I found out that Charles had a lot of relationships like that where he was communicating with people long distance and stuff. But um, he read my book, he liked it. And so we started talking and I think part of it had to do with, our journey had a lot in common. We both were inspired by Robert E. Howard's works. We both chose to use pre-colonial Africa as our foundation for our stories. We were both influenced by some of the same regions in Africa and the same history. Like his book, Soye was based on the minnow, which people call the, the Black Amazons from Dahomey. And I had actually come up with an idea for for my book, Woman of the Woods, which was based on the same same region for the same reasons and stuff. You know, we this is separately. We were both born. Our birthdays were like three days apart. You know. 11 uh-huh. years apart, but three days apart in July, uh-huh. we were both Pittsburgh Steelers fans. <laughs> <You> know, <so laughs> we both went to um, uh, historically black colleges. So it's just like all this stuff was just, you know, <laughs> it just that yeah, was meant to be. Yeah. It was just like, we just kept running it. There were so many things we had in common. And I think that had a lot to do with the fact that we became friends like that. We had a lot of things in common out, outside of the genre itself. We, he was a big, and we would talk about football games all the time. He was a big boxer. He was a big boxing fan. Oh. He actually used to write a lot of um, articles about particular boxing matches and stuff. And that's something a lot of people didn't know about him, but he was really big, um, big really into boxing and stuff like that. So so he was, um, I mean, he was. Uh, had a great sense of humor. He had a way of deciding what, he, what or what not he wanted to talk about. If I sent him an email about a subject and it was something that he really didn't want to discuss, when he sent me an email back, he wouldn't even mention it at all. To point. I would say, well, okay, well, you didn't want to talk about this, <laughs> but yeah, it was um, it was a it was a great relationship, you know. Um, again, like I said, the only thing I regret was that I never got a chance to really meet him face to face. I had planned to travel to Halifax at some point, but um, before I was able to get a chance to do it, you know, he passed away. So um, he was an interesting person. He was uh, he was fun to, to chat with. So.
0: Did he ever talk to you about maybe writing some boxing fiction? I have this weird half memory that Howard maybe wrote because I know Howard went way out of sword and sorcery as well, right? He did westerns and everything. And I, I feel like he did boxing stories, or did one or two. I don't know. I feel like there's a connection there somewhere.
1: Well, actually, Charles had a a pulp character that he created called Dambala, and the book was published uh, a few years ago. Um, man, I can't remember. Ron Forty years uh, publishing company, uh, Airship Twenty One, mm-hmm. and in that story, there's a boxer in there. It's it's funny because when Charles first when he first released Immoral. They had an issue because the publisher tried to describe them as a black Tarzan, yeah. And that had a, the, the um, Edgarite Burroughs, um, I guess I can't remember the name, what you would call him, but they they rose up and Their said, no, not, You can't do that. The state they said, No, we don't have to do that kind of stuff, you know. So when he wrote Dambala, he said, Well, you know what, I'm actually going to write. My version of a black Tarzan. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and
0: that's what
1: and that's what Damballa is really, you know. And he actually wrote a short a short Damballa story. Then he wrote this novel. And in that novel, is it's about basically the Germans having this this is like during before World War II having this boxer that they had basically you know given these special abilities to. And in this particular story, Damballa ends up working with and end up having to fight this boxer and stuff. So that's the only story, the only fiction story that I know of that he actually incorporated his love of boxing into um his fiction.
0: That's so cool though. And I love how he took like the bad marketing he was given and was like, all right, I'm gonna do something with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He said, you know what a I'm, great I'm attitude. Gonna, you
1: know, he said, I'm gonna do it. He says, he says so if somebody's claiming that I did it. I'm gonna actually do it.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I can respect the hell out of that. I love it. So I would say it's fair to say you have some idea of what's going on in the world of Amaro. What can you tell us, if anything, about because uh, I've been hearing rumors and whispers, you know, they said something about it on Rogues in the House podcast, you know, is there an Amaro TV series in the works? Do you know anything about that?
1: Um, there is. I, I guess I can say there's an effort to make it happen. There's okay. a, a, another gentleman that Charles knew really well. His name is uh, uh, Tack Kernsey. He met Tack. Actually, I think he met Tack before I, before I met him, and Tack was his um his charge was to get Imaro picked up in Hollywood, and mm-hmm. it was something that he'd been working on for a long time. A few years ago, a producer got in contact with me, trying to find Charles, and said he was interested in Imaro. And one thing led to another, I got in contact with TAC. And so at this point, and I don't think I'm spilling any beans right now because TAC has talked about this, there is something that's in the works. I can't say where it is right now at this point, but there is an effort being made to do that. So.
0: Well, I hope it goes all the way to the green light and, and gets out there because I think people will be ready for it. I mean, oh yeah,
1: I think it'd be great to see it. I mean, you know, it's something that hasn't been really hasn't been done before. It's another, it's another reason why um, that I started doing what I want to do because, um, you know, I would look at these movies, I would see people like uh, Michael Clark Duncan and folks like that, and I was like, you know, these guys really need to have their own movies and shows in this same type of genre and stuff, you know. So a lot of times when I sat down and I was writing, I was thinking about these people and saying, hey, man, it'd be great if they did this or they did that. That kind of stuff, you know. So, so hopefully, um, you know, um, there's been some things kind of were delayed because of his passing, but some things, as far as the estate is concerned, has been worked have been worked out. So, hopefully, we'll start seeing some things moving in that direction next year.
0: Well, that'd be awesome. Because I mean, I'm. It almost feels cliche to say it at this point, but like Black Panther made like a billion, right? <laughs> you know, amongst other things <laughs> that have come out. You know, like in the last few years. I mean, it's just obviously an appetite for stuff that is not showing? You know. It's the more traditional phases we keep seeing in spec fic and fantasy. Exactly. So yeah, I would, I would watch the hell out of that, man. Whether, they it on, whether it's new stories or based it right off the first book or, you know, yeah, no, I'm, I'm here for it. So Marvel, if you're listening or whoever's producing, <laughs> <laughs> get this thing going. Yeah. Um <laughs> All right. Uh, one of the things uh, I really liked about uh, a lot of sword and soul stories, or the ones I've read—I mean, I don't want to pretend I've read everything—is the focus on a pre-colonial setting. Or maybe I even just want to say they lack uh, a European colonial aspect because when applied to a different world than Earth, pre-colonial implies that colonial is like uh, inevitable. And boy, would it be nice to you know remind ourselves it isn't. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know. So you know, I was very interested to see, like, just this uh, morning as we're recording this, uh, an article. I'll link to the show notes, uh, listeners, so you can check it out about your Changa's Safari series, which seems much closer to like historical fiction or alt history than uh, maybe the Sword and Soul I've seen so far, Uh, because it includes colonial elements. It's it's sort of rooted in our history, if I understand correctly, uh, and even has some things in it like the slave trade. Uh, When you were coming up with Changa in the first place, what led you down this storytelling path, rather than say, like a secondary world?
1: Well, Jongo was my way to combine my two loves together: history and fantasy. And so, um, every every book has a purpose, I guess. When I first started writing, with when I wrote Meji I wanted to write an epic fantasy that kind of um, expressed the size and the variety of cultures in on the African continent. When I wrote Changa Safari, I wanted to show, I wanted to tell a good story for, at first, but I also wanted to show the connections that Africa had with the rest of the world that a lot of people weren't aware of because the Swahili culture was basically a culture that they were a seafaring culture, a maritime culture, were trading with East, East um, Asia all as far as China. And I wanted to be able to show that. And so that was part of the reason that I wrote, the, wrote Changa Safari. Again, it, it allowed me to play in history like I always, like I love and to add that fantasy element in it too every place that changa and his crew visits I basically tried to reflect that region of the world the way it was in the 15th century, not the way that we understand it now. And mm-hmm. so I had to do research into that and had to, and found out some very interesting things as I was doing it and, um, and understanding the myths and mythologies of those countries during that time period. So it all kind of added to, to me, if felt, I felt like it added to the rich, richness of the story. And the entire time I was keep, I was keeping people of African descent in the forefront. Other stories, the way that it would have been. You know, we talk about Marco Polo going to Asia and him writing about his stuff like that, but the Swahili people were doing this on a daily basis, you know, and it was just part of life for them. And, you know, when the Portuguese finally came around the Cape and got to East Africa, they saw this thriving merchant, merchantile culture going on. And it wasn't like, you know, sometimes you grow up in America, you keep thinking, oh, these people weren't doing anything until Europeans arrived. But when, you know, they, you know, and when he showed up, they were like, okay, Portuguese, cool, what you got? (laughs) You know, know, we've got ivory, we've got this we've got that what you got you know what do you have to trade that kind of stuff like that you know so it was um and i wanted to show that i wanted to um show that and express that in the books one of the most interesting things that happened after i released it was I, a gentleman from australia got in contact with me after i released the first Changa safari book and he said i read the book he said i had no idea about this history and he went to research and he said you see you know you said you opened me up to something that i didn't really realize what was going on during that time and and to me um I want the books to be entertainment, entertaining, but I also like it when people read the books and, and learn something from it, you know, learn something about the culture.
0: Yeah, well, I think that's that's a great explanation. And I, I love it, man. I love it. Like, because, yeah, I, especially, oh, okay, yeah, there's like five directions I want to go in because I think so interesting. Sorry. <laughs> but, like, okay, first up, one thing that I was thinking of while you were, you were saying that to me was uh, I often think of how when Fritz Leiber was coming up with Lankmar and those guys, he was originally going to set it in, you know, in um, antiquity era Alexandria. And then Lovecraft warned him and was like, no, 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 the history nerds are going to come for you. Make up your own place, <laughs> and so are you ready for the history nerds? Do you feel prepared <laughs> for people being oh, like, oh, "Hang on, no, 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 it was like this."
1: <laughs> oh, they, they've come for me, and it's um on the most on the, is the thing about it. In, in the most part, it's been positive. People have read my stuff, and they've actually said, "Hey, you know, I can tell you did you you did your research." And when they do have criticisms, it's like constructive criticism. Uh-huh. Instead of them attacking what I said, they will say, "You know, well, actually, this was kind of like this," on and. and the people that really give me this is interesting because I did a, um, a panel at DragonCon a couple of years ago. And we were talking about just about this. And I had a woman come up to me and she was like, You know, I can tell you did your research. You know, I'm an archaeologist. And she said, You know, like you said, sometimes historians can be biased. She said, if you wanted to get the truth, read stuff by archeologists, <laughs> <You know, laughs> you know, because we don't care about all that kind of stuff. We base what we say based on what we find, that kind of thing, you know? So, so it's been, um, it's been, um, you, you know, you're going to miss some stuff. Hmm. You you're, you're not going to get everything, and if you're not going to do it because you know you're afraid of getting something wrong, then you'll never do it. You know you're going to get stuff wrong. You know I, I I knew I learned more about Swahili culture after I started writing Changa than when I was writing it. I was saying to myself, man, I wish I had known this stuff when I first started writing the book, because I could have yeah. incorporated this and it would have made Changa's story even more interesting. A lot of the stuff I learned about Swahili culture that I didn't know before I started writing the book showed up in the prequel before the before the safari, you know, because I went back and added that stuff in there and stuff, you know, so you're always learning something. So, you you know, you can't not do it because you don't know everything. But as you go along, as you as you go along, because part of the reason that you learn things is because you are doing it Hmm. and people are bringing you this this additional information because you're you know, you've started this journey. And people are looking at what you're doing and they're saying, Hey, I like this, but, and then they'll get in contact with you and say, Hey, check this out or research this, that kind of thing. You
0: know? Well, first of all, that archeologist story, that must've been so gratifying. <laughs> that been So gratifying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And as you say, you can always keep moving the story forward or backward to put in the stuff that you've learned while, you know, working on it. Right? Like there's, there's a, have you not come out with a volume of uh, essentially origin stories? for the Changa characters?
1: Well, um, actually, Before the Safari does do that. That's one of the things I wanted to do in that book was that I actually give an origin story for each of the people, each of Changa's crew members, major crew members. There's a story in there about Panya, about the Tuareg, about Prince Aki, there's about uh, McKaylee, and it shows basically what all of them were doing before they met Changa. What set them on their journey to meet Changa, and then and I also have an origin story about Changa in there. The first story is Changa's origin origin story, and it's mixed in with um, some other adventures that Changa takes parts in before the actual safari begins. That's why it's called Before the Safari, because it kind of <laughs> all these little stories kind of lead you up to the beginning of the safari. The last story is Prince Key's story, which if you've read the first book. You know, it actually goes right up to the point where just before Changa and the rest of his crew meet meet Prince of Ki, so, um
0: Now I'm, I'm guessing people probably want to start with the first book, not the origin, uh, sorry, not before though, right?
1: The, the gentleman that wrote the article, Fletcher Vinderberg, been a big fan of Changa. He says the Before the Safari book benefits um, more from having read the other books before you read it. The first three books. I actually use it as a break before I wrote the final book in the series. I just went back and did Before the Safari so I could like, it gave me time to um, think about how I was going to end the series as I was writing that book and it kind of gave me a little break from the telling the story.
0: Kind of. Well I like that too right because it's almost like going back and going all right before I get to this ending let me really understand my characters like really, <laughs> exactly. you know really really I mean I'm not that you didn't before but you know like go even deeper kind of thing.
1: Exactly and, and that was it was during that book that I was able to take a lot of the stuff that I had learned about the Swahili culture while I was writing the series and have it reflected in the last book the final book of the Changa series when I finally wrote it. Well
0: I'm curious I feel like like, uh, I'm having so much deja vu this morning. I don't know why. I feel like this came up uh, with another author, but I want to hear your take you know, as we're on it. Uh, a lot of sword and sorcery characters, you don't get origin stories, or if you do, they come later, like when libraries stitched together is, you know, he, he wrote an origin story long after we were introduced to Fafnir and Grey Mouser. How do you feel about like the necessity and the proper timing, if you are going to tell it, uh, of an origin story for your, for your characters?
1: I, I think it depends on the story, the way you tell it. I, I always had, a, I always knew what, what Changa's origin was, but I didn't really feel the need to tell it mm. because I didn't feel like it was necessary to tell that origin. It was more of a, me doing it was more of a response to people who started reading the books and were, and and were, and were were enjoying the books, and they were asking those kind of questions. and 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 when I decided to do before the before the safari, I said, "Well, you know what? I'm just going to start it off with Changa's origin." Because I already knew the story, so I'm just going to go ahead and tell it and stuff. I have another character, Omari Ket, which is he comes he's comes from my Kikanga RPG world, and I started the story I started his series with his origin okay. because for him, who he is and what he ends up being has a lot to do with his origin and where he came from. So that's why I started that story there because you needed to know what launched him into his life as a indentured mercenary. <laughs> you know, what, what were the circumstances that started that? And that story also gives you a feel for the kind of person he is. It sets up who Omari Kidd is. So as you read the book, you know him as you go through the different adventures and that kind of thing.
0: Well, and I think you've illustrated what, what my feeling is about this. And I'd like to hear if you agree, you know, it seems like with origin stories, It's got to be a conscious choice. It can't be just like, well, you got to start at the beginning. You know, I think that's where we get a lot of the lackluster origin stories or the ones where people go back and write them because they're like, well, I guess I got to, you know? Uh, I mean, I like uh, Ilmet and Lankmar, the example I always go to, but the individual origin stories for Fafnir and Grey Mouse are not great. Um, (laughs) And a lot of people will tell you that. And I think this is this thing of like, he's, you know, Liber maybe felt like, I gotta go back and do this. I guess I'll do individual stories. I mean, who knows? I I don't read his mind. But yeah, we, I feel like we've all seen that the origin story that feels kind of like just, it's just, it's just there. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, if you if you're gonna do it, yeah, you know, you have some some people that just do it because maybe some agent came to them and said you need to write an origin story. And they and to me, if it's not important, if it wasn't integral to the part to the telling the story, then why do it? Yeah, I I, I bring this up as an example, like when I watch movies and stuff, and they're written a certain way, and then somebody says, hey, you know, we want to put a black character in, or something like that. It's kind of an afterthought, and when they put the character in there, it feels like it was an afterthought. Yeah, and then somebody just tried to jam that into the story, you know. But if when it's there in the beginning, it ties into the, the whole narrative as you see the whole story going through. Whereas, like I said, when I went back to write Changa's origin story, it was not more of an add-on or any, any of the characters really, because I already knew their origin stories before I started writing Changa Safari. So I just wanted to start at a certain point in their life. I was just telling the stories that I already had had figured out. And when you read the stories, you see how those stories connect to the personalities of the characters when you met them when the when the safari started
0: yeah and there was reader demand you know you'd already hooked people uh, you know yeah. with the with, the, with, the, with the, the questions that came into their mind while they were reading these characters later in their lives right yeah. so yeah. i think it's
1: really about it's like even when you look at Charleston, i think it's about that background story being there in the beginning mm-hmm. instead of somebody sitting down saying hey i want to write something like 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 conan and they start writing the stories and then somebody, and, and they never really haven't thought about the origin of these guys. They just create the scenario and they start writing it, but there's, there's no background that really explained where they came from.
0: Okay. Yeah. Whereas, like with Amaro, I mean, not only is it sort of noteworthy because you don't get to see a lot of sword and soul soul or sword and sorcery heroes uh, who start as children, right? You get a little bit of him as yeah. a kid. And boy, mm-hmm. is it integral. I won't spoil it, uh, listener, but oh, yeah. trust me, it's there, for good, it's there for a good reason. Exactly. But then, meanwhile, you know, while you're talking there, you kept making me think of. Uh, have you ever seen a movie that's like the title is such and such colon origins and you're excited. (laughs) I always see whenever I'm seeing that like Wolverine origins or whatever, I'm just like, Oh man, this is no, this is not going to be good. Um,
1: (laughs) And it's usually somebody going back that, the stories have been told, and they say, "Hey, you know what? We want to do. You know, we want to tell how this stuff all started." Yeah. And um and they weren't the people that were that basically created the story yeah. or had a feel for the story. So they really don't. They they really weren't in the, the author's mind on what they were thinking about when they wrote it. And it and it sh- and it shows when you get this origin story, you know, that kind of
0: thing. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, "Oh, and that's where he got his pants from." Okay, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, usually it's not even answering any big questions. You're like, "All right, okay."
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm not gonna say the series, but there was somebody that did a. There was a pre series done from a science fiction series that I really like, and one of the worst prequel books was almost like that. That yeah. the book was written just to explain one aspect of the story, yeah. and it ended so abruptly. I'm like, so why even write this? It, it had nothing to do with everything else that was going on in the novel. It was almost like I just want to explain this. I'm going to write this these few chapters just to explain that, and then I'm just going to leave it alone.
0: You know. Yeah, and, and, and maybe also make a few dollars off of uh, a franchise somebody else built. But uh, yeah. maybe that's cynical yeah. of me. I don't know. Anyway, I can rag on this all day. Let's- <laughs> you mentioned it. I really want to get into it. Uh, you know, uh, MV Media isn't just doing books and comics. Got into the tabletop role-playing game uh, thing with Kikanga. Could you tell the people a little bit about that? and about your personal connection to the tabletop RPG hobby. What's, you know, were you we playing D&D in the basement when you were like 11? Or is it like a new thing? You know, how, how did this all come about for
1: you? OK, uh, true confession. Like a friend of mine says, uh, confession is good for the soul, but bad for the reputation. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I had never played an RPG game before we created Kakanga. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna go ahead and lay it out there. The reason it happened was because my creative partner uh, Balogun Oj Tade has played RPG games for 40, 50 years. He's played them for a long time. And when he was playing the games, um, you know, he's pl- he started off with Dungeons and Dragons. And like most black people playing games like that, you know, he noticed this lack of representation. So he actually would create his own scenarios for his D&D friends, you know, and he would incorporate. You know african culture into it not too long after we met he and i was having a discussion and we started talking about that and we, him and i are the kind of people that's the reason we get along so well when we see stuff like that we say okay let's do it you know instead of just complaining about it we you know we say, okay let's do it so we were talking about this and i guess it was serendipity or whatever we were getting ready to do a presentation and there were a number of people on the panel and as we were talking about it this one guy came over to us and he said um are you guys talking about rpgs and we said uh yeah He said, well, um, my name is Ed Hall. And then uh, Balogoon's eyes got big. He said, you're the Ed Hall? And I'm sitting there dumbfounded like, (laughs) <laughs> What's this? The Ed Hall guy. He said this guy's like an editor for White Wolf. He's done this game. He's done that game, and <laughs> <laughs> like that, you know. So, so all three of us started talking, and we talked about the idea we were thinking about. And he said, "Well, hey, you know, when you guys get it together, you know, let me know, and you know, I'll take a look at it and give you guys some uh, pointers or something like that, you know." So, and that's how that all came to be. And um, my involvement in K- in Kikonga was more creating the backstories and developing the world, whereas um, Balagoon's main point is he's basically he's the game master he's our griot he was the one that created the the playing system the different levels and all those kind of details and uh so and then we know we wrote it out a few years ago Um, it was different than most rpg games because we based it on a card playing system as opposed to dice Oh, And um, now we're actually working right now on a Kakonga 2.0, which is going to incorporate dice because, you know, we got tired of people crying about it. (laughs) (laughs) There were some people who really jumped onto the, on the card thing. And other people were like, Oh, I want my dice. So, you know, uh, 2.0, which is, um, is going to come out and it's going to have a dice plan system incorporated into it and stuff. But that's where that all came about. Again, it was sword and soul. We developed um, the anthology because we wanted to give people ideas about how to create the adventures Mm. and by telling these different stories and stuff so we were trying to give everybody ideas because we know a lot of people aren't familiar with African culture Mm. and so you know they're trying to figure out how do I tell a story this way and so we said well, we're gonna give you some examples and then maybe from these examples you can go on and develop your own adventures
0: well and and parallel to that I saw your uh, sword and soul world building video which you know I thought was pretty solid I'm gonna link to that in the show notes so people can check it out uh, how to get their their minds going so uh, yeah, it's kind of cool actually to see like another pre-colonial you know game out there. Like, I don't know if you, have you heard of uh, Coyote and Crow?
1: I have not heard of that.
0: Oh, Okay, uh, you might want to check it out just out of curiosity. It, it is uh, a pre-colonial uh, North American Indigenous peoples RPG. Oh yeah,
1: yeah, I did hear about that. I did, I did see, I did see that because um, I know as far as African based there was a game back in the day called Nyambe, Nyambe or something like that that was uh-huh. out, and it was funny because as we were doing ours, we found out that a lot of times things that we do end up influencing other people. Now, <laughs> Listener,
0: uh, influencing was put in quotation marks, so that's interesting. I mean, you know, stealing is flattery, I guess. I don't know,
1: <laughs> yeah. Sometimes, you know, um, we we talk about it sometimes, but uh, I give you a good well, a particular we had a particular character in um Kikonga called the frog hag, and there was a story behind her. And uh, not too long after the game came out, a particular well known um RPG company came out with a character that the illustration of the character looked exactly like our frog uh, and it
0: was like the toad witch <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, something like that but even even worse than that i recently saw some person they came out there was a smaller company um not only did they copy the character kadira from kikanga they actually used the same name they called their character kadira <laughs> oh
0: boy you're like make an effort i mean i know you're copying but <laughs> yeah so it was
1: a, it was it's been an interesting it's been an interesting journey but uh you know like they say what they say uh, imitation is serious for of flattery so mm. i guess we should be flattered by this
0: <laughs> i guess i mean okay well definitely let's encourage people to get the original <laughs> the original yeah, flavor you go. Or, the you go. or you know speaking of being ready for the nerds to come for you man i hope uh, you know your rpg buddies have warned you when you come out with a second edition that's going to start the edition wars you're going to have people being like no first edition's <laughs> better cards man you gotta oh. do the cards you know <laughs>
1: It was interesting when we first rolled the game out because we did test playing and we picked different groups of people to test test the game out to see what they think about it. And it was it was distinct differences. Some of the old D&D veterans started complaining right off the bat. So you guys don't have categories like, you know, wizard and warrior and stuff like that. You, You know, you're not using the dice and blah, 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 you know. And we're like, "Okay, that's because this is not Dungeons and Dragons. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is yeah. not I, I don't like this. You made drone <laughs> <your> own thing. <laughs>
1: yeah, you know, this is not D&D. But then we had a, we had people who had never played role playing games before that we introduced it to. And they liked it. They liked the card system and stuff. They had no prior experience. But then we had I hate to say it was an age based thing. And then we had younger people who had played Dungeons and Dragons, then came to Kakanga and they enjoyed it. Mm. they got right into the differences and stuff like that. So it's, you know, I I found out that the the role-playing game community, the players are very loyal to whatever they've been playing it, because some of them have been playing it for decades, you know, Mm. um, with the same people and the same character. And so we're never trying to convert people. We're not trying to get somebody to stop playing this and then play that. Mm -hmm. What we're trying to do is just create our own game and find people that are interested in it. And when people get very upset, I just tell them, basically, you know, this is a game. We're not trying to convert you. We're not trying to beat Dungeons and Dragons. We're creating our own game. Either you're going to look at it and be interested and play it and enjoy it, or you're not, you know?
0: Yeah. And I always find it funny when people get like that. Like, what, you can't enjoy two games? You just eat one food? Exactly.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, i tell you one interesting note, though. We I was very in- surprised by the interest we got in Brazil. We had a lot of people in Brazil that really loved Kakanga, so much so that we actually had one company that wanted to make a Brazilian version of the game. They wanted so, to bring it in and do it in Brazilian Portuguese. At the time we were being very um, cautious about exposing the game because we were concerned about people, you know, taking it and trying to do, do their own things and stuff like that. But it's something that we're, we're revisiting now because um, we're seeing a lot of interest in other countries like that. And, um Having a version of the game where the the language has been translated to something that they would make it easier for people in those particular countries is something that we're starting to focus on and look at now.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I don't count me as an expert, but I've been an avid hobbyist for decades. And yeah, like as far as I know, there is a very strong role playing game scene down there. Uh, and Germany, too. I remember every, every game I got into, I was a big Shadowrun fan. And if you ever heard of that one, it's like <laughs> Cyberpunk meets Magic. And uh, I just remember being stunned that they had German translations of all of their books. <laughs> oh, I was like, oh, yeah. they do that over there. Like, I'm the dumb kid growing <laughs> up. But, you know, uh, you, yeah, you know, no, there's definitely markets outside of the, the ones you'd expect. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as the older players, I hear you. Uh, have, I know you're still like. It sounds like you did the smart thing any any businessman does. You found the talent to bring in to do you know to handle the, the stuff you're unfamiliar with, the game mechanics, that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm just curious though. Have you come across or encountered the term grognard? No, we I have. not Talking about role playing fans. No, I have. not Yeah. Haven't. No, yeah. No, no oh man. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like a it's like an oldish term unto itself. I forget exactly when it was coined, but um, it basically. It originally was the term for like the oldest soldiers in Napoleon's army, uh, his oldest most uh. units who would always kind of bitch and complain about things because they're like, well, we've been around, we can, you know, whatever. Right? And that term ended up because, you know, D&D came out of wargaming, that term kind of got grafted onto like the older, more curmudgeonly players who <laughs> were like, oh, the card system in the role playing game, what the hell? So, yeah, you know, this, maybe next time someone gives you that grief, you can just be like, hey, man, I don't listen to grognards. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that's a term I have to I have to keep in mind. Yeah. You know, I mean, like I said, Kikonga was the first role playing game that I ever played. As we played, I was I could see why people would be interested in, in why people play role game playing games, because you're basically, you know, you're
0: creating a story as you go. Oh, yeah. No, I love it. Love the clever storytelling. And, and and you get these, uh, you know, I'm still having laughs about memories from games I played like 15 years ago. With, yeah. the, with those same buddies. You, you remember it just as much as like a crazy party story or whatever.
1: Yeah. And, and, there's, and there's a number of game masters that have become novel writers because they're basically storytellers. Oh, yeah.
0: You know? Yeah. Yeah. Back um, and forth. People move along that axis for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I can talk about that all day long. But let's move on. Just <laughs> it's my it's one of my favorite hobbies. I'm getting my group back together tomorrow for the first time since COVID. Um, but all anyway, right. not about me. Let's move on. Oliver. You can tell <laughs> I'm an only child, right? Uh, so Sword and Soul isn't just writing and gaming as we've been discussing, it's also some pretty cool artwork, you know, and as we also talked about you, you've been adapting Changa Safari as comic books. And yeah. last September, uh, in your interview with Indie Comics Dispatch, you said that you guys are gonna, you know, NV media are gonna be getting further into publishing comics and you want to get into animation as well and taking some steps there. I mean, that could be an hour unto itself. Uh, but maybe <laughs> just briefly, like, you know, who are, who are some of your favorite artists that you've worked with? What style do you feel works best for the genre?
1: That's a tough question uh, <laughs> because I, I love all the artists that I work with. I, I choose them based on um, what I think they bring to the story. I grew up around my cousins. I had two cousins that were artists and unfortunately I didn't have a the talent. Um, they let me know that very early on, but, <laughs> <laughs> Good, eh? <laughs> but I've always been surrounded by it. And so when I started developing these stories and these characters and stuff, you know, I used to be part of a group called, uh, um, it was called black superhero. And it was basically a, a forum of a bunch of black comic book artists. And I got exposed to a lot of these guys' works and the, and, and a lot of them are people that I work with now because I became familiar with the artwork in this group. And when everybody, it, it was a very volatile type group, but I would always pull people aside and say, hey, you know, I really like your artwork. You know, can you do this for me? Can you do that work for me? So I, I think I, pro- I more could talk about it more along the lines of people that I've worked with the longest. Um, and one particular artist would be Stanley Weaver Jr. I've been working with Stan, Probably almost as long as I've been publishing, and when we first started working together, Stan was more of a contemporary comic book, futuristic type artist, and he really didn't have a lot of background on the on the uh, regions and the and the cultures that I was looking at. So I would send him, you know, photographic references, and he was very good at looking at those references and coming up with something for me. And um, at this point now. Um, is real easy for me to work with, because he knows me and I know him. And all I have to do is just say, hey, Stan, I'm working on this new Omari Cat novel. This is what I'm looking for. I may send him a couple of references and then he comes back and bam, he hits the right about right the part because he has a very dynamic style. And his, his artwork is very energetic, has a lot of motion in it. And sometimes that's what I'm looking for when I'm doing a particular story. Um, uh, other artists that I worked with, um one artist that you, you have to talk about is um Mishindo Kumba. Um uh, Mashindo's phenomenal. Um it, if you've seen the more recent um Imaro books, Mashindo is the person that's done the cover for those art for those Oh books. yeah,
0: yeah. Three and four uh, in particular yeah. right, I'm thinking of yeah. yeah. That's
1: his artwork. He he did the cover for my um for our Kikanga anthology, my Kikanga game that's he's done he's done that work. He's a he's a person that art, artist that's into the afrocentric vibe and so he's a, he's another one that's very easy to work with when it comes to that uh, we've done some work with brian Syme. uh brian does a lot of uh rpg illustrations and he actually when we started um kikanga he got in contact with us and said hey i think this is a great idea i'd love to do some artwork for you guys so that's what we, we work with him it's so many of them that i and I and like i said i love them all <laughs> i really can't say i really can't say uh kira the artist uh, a young lady that's out of florida i work with her she actually did the cover for priestess of enku and i've known her for a long time i love her style of artwork she did some artwork that i used for before the safari again each of them brings they bring their own flavor to it that's why i don't use them on every project but there are certain projects when i pull up i say hey i know this is perfect for kiro this is a great one for stan and that's a, that kind of thing like that so i probably answered your question without answering it
0: <laughs> no no no, <laughs> that's all good man i just wanted your thoughts and feelings and it's not definitely uh got got me to you know i noticed there was a very comic book feel <laughs> to a lot of the art uh that and that's why was, right so that's why, why yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, a lot of my artists are comic book artists. You know, you get that vibe from them, which is okay with me. You know, I I like that. But um, you have somebody like, for instance, Edison Moody. He did the cover to the city. Edison is more what you would see your more traditional cover art type artist. And and it reflects on that when you see the cover of that book. So it's a lot of different artists. I think
0: we almost kind of illustrated it uh, with this question. But I often wrap up interviews with things uh, along the lines of like, you know, who do you recommend or whatever. But then there's always this fear in the guest where they're like, I don't want to forget, you know, Bob. I love Bob, you know. I don't want to, you know, or whoever, you know, and there's all this kind of anxiety. I see this flop sweat. So I'm trying to get better. Let's see if I've gotten better. <laughs> what I would instead like to ask, which is maybe a bit more of an appropriate question uh, for you in your publishing role. Who is the latest author you've taken on board? Uh, how did that go? What made you decide that they were worth, you know, investing in?
1: Oh, okay. Well, it's there's there's um three artists that are authors that I've um currently published each of them for different reasons. When it comes to sword and soul, there's an art author called her name is uh, Sarah Macklin, and Sarah um we published the first thing I published by Sarah was her story in our Griot Sisters of the Spear. Matter of fact, her story is the opening story for the book because I was so impressed by it when I read it. I was like, man, this is a great story, and um, we published a book by her recently called The Royal Heretic and that is one of the best sword and soul, sword and sorcery epic fantasy stories i've ever read i was blown away by it when i read it because i was like this is her first book and she just nails everything she's created such a, a foundation which and i'm glad this is going to be a series it was the kind of book that i read when i first when i ended it, i was like okay, where's the second part? <laughs> I, I got to see the say I got to see where this story is going to go. Uh, another artist, another author that I published recently is um, a, a brother by the name of Enoch Zambaya. And Enoch's actually from Zambia. He got in contact with me. He said he read Griosis of the Spear. He was inspired by it. And he sent me some uh, story, a story that eventually became a novel. Um, I like him because he has a very epic fantasy feel to his work and he's working from an indigenous African culture. So that brings a perspective to the storytelling. That's something that Charles and I talked about, because initially, Most Sword and Soul was coming from African American authors and doing the research. And we always talked about, I wonder how this storytelling is going to be when we start getting authors from African cultures. And Enoch is one of those, and there's a lot of them out there now, and they're telling some great stories, you know, and, and it's actually came out like we did, and I know I'm, I should have talked about one person, but 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 there's also uh, B. Sharice Moore, whose book I just published, "Doctor Marvelous Genes Art Scholars," which is a um which goes into my steam funk diesel funk uh, genres, and uh, again another great storyteller. I read a book by her years ago, and uh, she does a really good job at incorporating history and fiction, and just putting it all together to make a great book. It actually, was our we released it this year, and as well it was our Best performing release ever.
0: Oh, awesome. It
1: did great. I mean, I, I mean I was kind of envious because he actually sold more books than i sold on my own first time. Uh,
0: <laughs> another <laughs> <Yeah>. publisher writer problem.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like I'm happy as a publisher, as a writer. I don't, yeah.
1: Uh, why are they not selling me? You know, it's my but it's a good problem
0: to have. Oh yeah, <laughs> well that's awesome, man. Well, okay, so I I've I really enjoyed chatting with you, and I've I've got like thirty more questions. We'll maybe we should do this again sometime. But for now, <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm gonna link, of course, to your website, you know, your business website, and every social media I've been able to find and a whole bunch of other stuff. But you know, let's get into final question. What are you and MV Media working on now? You know, like what's the newest stuff people can check out, or in the near future, and where can people find you?
1: Okay, we've got a number of uh, books coming out. that Actually, been released this year. Um, they're basically paperback versions of books that we had in ebook fashion, like Fallen, which is uh, game Majoga, which is actually a Sword and Soul series based in the in the Changa universe. It's it's out right now. Um, we have another one coming out called The Long Walk, which is a, a steampunk funk um, story based on a rite of passage world that. Balogun and I developed together. And it's a really interesting uh, story. I think you, people would enjoy it. Um, I'm actually, um, one of the things that, that I like is that I get to work with authors that I admire. And so this year we actually have a, a, a we're releasing, uh, re-releasing a book by author Minister Faust mm-hmm. called The, uh, the Alchemist of Cush. I actually read the book years ago and loved it, and I met Minister Faust uh, a few years ago, and when he came to Atlanta to speak at Georgia Tech, and so we, you know, developed a relationship, and you know, and I was like, "Hey, man, I really would like to publish by you a book by you." He said, "Hey, great." He said, "How about?" Um, the Alchemist of Kush. I'm like, oh, man, I get to publish my favorite book by you. <laughs> nice. you know, so it's a great book. Mr. Um, uh, Faust is a great storyteller. Um, I published some of his short stories and some of my anthologies. So those are probably the main um, books we're working on right now. I've got um, a serial novel that's going to be on my Patreon called Black Rose, which is actually my first historical fiction novel. Again, I go to the Swahili culture, but this is a book about a Swahili merchant who ends up uh, taking in a Japanese princess on the request of her father because their family is in a dire situation. And so I talk about this relationship between them and how you know she ends up actually eventually taking this young girl to. East Africa and raising her within the Swahili culture. So um, I'm really excited about that one. So that'll be coming out as well. It'll be
0: on your Patreon. Is that like patreon.com slash?
1: Yeah, it's going to be an MV Media Patreon. I'm going to launch it next month. And okay. I'm going to have certain stories that are going to be specific to the Patreon that after they become full fledged novels and I release them and stuff like that. But to read them as we're developing them, you'll be if you're a Patreon member, you can follow them as we're. Oh,
0: developing. very cool. And also you further utilizing the fact that you're both writer and publisher. You know, I was just in my last interview talking with someone about how. You know, you see some authors releasing like early drafts of their chapters on their Patreon, but then they try and get it published and they kind of run into trouble because, <laughs> like, publishers yeah, might be yeah. like, Yeah, you already kind of put this out. Um, so, well, you know,
1: since it, I'm the publisher, exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No problem. There's no problem with that. Uh-huh. You know, we also have a couple of animation projects. We're working on one called Playing the Oz, which is a cyberpunk um, uh, series that we're working on right now. We've got a great team working together on that. And we've got the from here to book 2 Animation, and I'm working with Avaloy Studios in Atlanta. Uh, we've got a pilot out. We're actually uh, working on um, getting that done as well. Uh, we'll probably be announcing crowd funders for both of those projects in the near future um, to get them going. So um, a lot of stuff going on. Very cool, man. All
0: right, awesome. Well, like I say, I, I could just chat with you all day, man. Anytime you're up in Toronto, I'll buy you a beer. Uh, but, uh, but right here, right now, I guess I should tie it off. So uh, again, thank you so much uh, for being here, Milton. Hey,
1: thanks for having me, man. I uh, enjoy yeah, it. Alright
0: man, take care. Uh, you too. So I'm writing a novel features original music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. Bonus points if you record yourself and send me an MP3 I can cut into the show. Doesn't have to be fancy. Using your phone is fine. Just keep it clear and concise. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing, at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, leaving a review on iTunes, and checking out patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Patrons get to be thanked in the final novel, listen to episodes of the podcast a week early, and even enjoy a bonus podcast called So I Wrote a Novel, where I read and comment on chapters of previous works, starting with my first novel, Junkyard Leopard. Thanks for hanging out with me and Milton, and I'll see you soon.